Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. It is for me today, April 25th. It is a Monday and I'm actually getting this episode out on time, so go me. We have some really fun stuff this episode, of course. Um, news being the news, we have uh, news points will include news on Across the Spider-Verse, the Batgirl movie. We're finally going to discuss that uh, Disney Florida situation. Uh, the rumored Werewolf by Night casting, Love and Thunder rumored castings, Illuminati lineup rumors for Multiverse of Madness, and uh, a bit of additional Multiverse of Madness speculation. So it's my it's, last week. I think we had a really big DC week. This week we're having a really big, for the most part, it's Marvel in the news this week. So we go back and forth, <laughs> and then we'll go into the comic book picks as usual. Just a couple of things this week. We're do doing Bolero number four. Catwoman Lonely City number three, which I was so surprised and happy to find out that that is not the final issue. Uh, and then Homesick Pilots number 14 and um, a couple of others there that we'll talk about when we get there. And then a week of comic book polls for this week coming out. DC Comics the 26th, which is Tuesday, and for everything else, Wednesday the 27th of April. There's some really cool number ones that are coming out this week across indie as well as the big two. So lots of exciting stuff. Stay tuned to hear about this week's new comic books. Uh, as far as other forms of entertainment, we are going to cover Moon Knight episode four, which I'm not going to lie to you. The bulk of this is going to be me explaining you a thing about um, ancient Egyptian burial methods and the history of various real historical figures, eh, you know, and we'll have obviously like lots of stuff that will connect to comics, but um, <clears throat> I have to get this out of my system. I know I said last time that I was going to try to rein it in with how much we talk about the like the ancient Egypt stuff in relation to Moon Knight. We're going full in on it this one, man. I, I, they, they were so wrong. They were so wrong with so much of this episode um so wrong so i have to correct it i can't help it um but then of course you know all of the that crazy ending all of that fun good stuff um uh, we'll talk about and explain and go over theories on how that might be and i do have again a bunch of links at the bottom of the episode description going more into the history and stuff if you do want more details on that uh, after that, of course, Young Justice Season 4, Episode 19, titled Encounter Upon the Razor's Edge. I think we're getting towards the end of the season here. Um, and then we're going to wrap up the episode with, as I promised last week, the DC and Marvel Comics July solicitations. So everything that um, is, in my mind, noteworthy coming out um, in July from DC Comics and Marvel Comics go run through that list see and the reason that I do that is to see if anything might catch your interest things that are coming up in the future so you have time to order them with a local comic shop um, however you might go about doing that um, as well as to you know pretend for myself familiarize myself with the names of creators and artists and things and um, of course to keep to keep up to date on what is coming in comics is always a really good way um, if you want to like be aware a little bit of what's happening in the industry. Keeping up with solicitations is a good way to do that for at least the big two. As always, before we we start, I want to go about uh, just talking about my my social media stuff. Um, 
of course the discord um, i might end up putting that link in my link tree um or at the end of the episode so people who actually have to listen to the episode and then go all the way to the bottom to find it so they actually you know hopefully weeding out people who aren't actually as <laughs> into the stuff that we are into um but anyway that's that's still there if you want to be involved with that and i'll, I'll get that set up so it's more accessible um because i know it's like kind of awkward sometimes to reach out and ask for those kinds of things so we'll we'll, we'll straighten that out otherwise you can find me on instagram username anna with the comics um and twitter username savage shigi because i have updates about the podcast that i put there so if it's anything really important that is where you can find it um my website right now is going through um some updates nothing crazy i don't know maybe um uh, we'll see how I end up doing it, but, um, it's just, it's sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. Again, linked below. Um, and I've been trying to kind of make it more user-friendly as there's so much stuff that just hasn't been updated on it in so long. Um, so I'm trying to kind of work on that. I know I have the highlights on the front page right now about, um, three of some of my, uh, favorite comic characters really of all time. Um, but I am going to kind of update those possibly, add some different things in there, switch things out. Um, but in any case, go ahead and poke around there. Again, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com if you're at all interested in, um, seeing what I have on the site, which includes all kinds of stuff from when I, from before I started the podcast because uh, it all used to be just a written blog based format um, and now I just do the podcast and that works out a lot better for me and I hope it works out better for people who are interested in these subjects um, but aside from that you can also find me on YouTube username of course sensational she geek I do post the podcast on YouTube as well it's pretty much everywhere that you can find um, podcasts online um, I'm pretty sure everywhere. So, um, so, so YouTube is included there and I also have, uh, my action figure review videos and tours of our collection and stuff that is all up there on YouTube. Uh, recent figure that I did was, uh, the Whis from Dragon Ball Super, who was re-released for the San Diego Comic-Con, I think, I guess this year, that would make sense. Or was it last year? Who knows? I, San Diego Comic-Con, period. Um, so you can check out that, that video if you are interested in Dragon Ball or Whis or anything. Whis and, uh, Beerus are, like, my favorite characters from <laughs> that entire saga of stuff, of media, so, um, so I have, uh, I have videos reviewing both of those updated figures, so you can check that out on my YouTube channel as well. Again, it is just Sensational She Geek. It's, you can find me there at most things, Sensational She Geek. Um, I have also been updating ways to support the, po the podcast. I have a post about that on my website now that you can check out if you are all interested. It's basically the standard, um, the Patreon, Ko-fi, Cash App, you know, PayPal link, uh, whatever else, um, as well as social media links are all there. Um, and explanations for what all of those different, um, different, uh, platforms, I guess, are for and how they work and stuff. So if you don't really understand that, and I just found out that Patreon just updated their system so that you can, um, you can have your thing be per post rather than per month. It's, you can go check it out. I have it all explained on that post. So anyway, that's, that's on my website. Again, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. 
And there's a couple merch things on there under Redbubble as too. Uh, I've decided to call it merch. <laughs> so you can check that out there as well. That brings us up to the news, which again this week I am starting the news with a couple of smaller points that I don't really have much to say on except for the fact that they are points that I wanted to mention. Uh, point one being the Flight Attendant Season 2 has started back up on, well has started up on HBO Max. Um, very surprised by how much I enjoyed the first season and very happy to see Season 2 is off to a excellent start as well. An excellent start. Um, additionally, Season 2 of Pacific Rim the Black is up on Netflix, which is kind of like an anime-style um, story in the Pacific Rim world, I guess. I don't really know what, what the phrasing is, but I enjoyed it, and maybe you will too. Um, season 2, though, is kind of meh. It's, it's okay. Season 1 was better. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is rumored to begin filming for an HBO Max series soon. Um... I'm not too big of a fan of that franchise, but I know a lot of people are, so there you go. The Echo Disney Plus series as well did begin filming on the 21st, according to various social media posts. And um, for the June, sorry, May Yancey Street special, I will be doing an episode, I think I've mentioned, all about Patsy Walker. Um, and that is going to be for... Uh, before Tony proposes to her in, uh, I believe it's the June 14th is when the issue comes out. So it's plenty in advance because her history, it's going to cover every, I mean, she, she started as a timely character. She was Marvel before Marvel even had that name. Um, so she has a lot of stuff to cover and she's actually a fascinating character. Um, and I have some really great resources that I found. Uh, so I hope I hope that that will end up being as exciting and interesting of a podcast as I am imagining it will be. Um, and again, as I mentioned already, I am updating my website right now. So there's a few things that are going to be switching around in the next couple of weeks. I have finally updated all of my pod notes. So if you wanted to scan any of those for things or um, would rather read more or less the podcast than listen to me, then you can do that. No judgment. The Across the Spider-Verse news that we have, now Across the Spider-Verse obviously being the sequel slash sequels to um, Into the Spider-Verse, oh wow, I blinked for a second there, to Into the Spider-Verse, which was released in 2018 and still to this day remains one of the most popular and successful Spider-Man movies, I think, ever to hit the big screen, so that's awesome. Uh, really, really great movie. We rewatch it every now and then because it's it's stellar. It's very rewatchable. Um, but Across the Spider-Verse is going to be the sequel. It's coming out in two different parts. We had initially had a release date in late 2022, I believe, um, and now it has been pushed back to June 2nd, 2023. Um, the reasoning for this is most likely because they have now had a they now have a date for part two of the uh, the duo of movies. It's not really part two of a movie. Um, I guess it might be just part two of a, what you might call a very long movie. Doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, that will be coming out on March 29th, 2024. So I believe the reason that this was shifted more or less in case I'm missing something really obvious was because they wanted to just have that be a bit closer. It's about six months closer to the original movie or the original release date. Um, or then the original release date. Whew, I'm getting my words mixed up. Um, 
and hopefully that will make uh, whatever amount of difference they think that it'll make. A big difference, I suppose, six months closer. Um, the sequel is going to bring, we know it's going to bring in Miguel O'Hara, who is, of course, Spider-Man 2099. Self-explanatory, he is a Spider-Man from the year 2099. And he is going to be voiced by Oscar Isaac. We actually saw him in the end credits scene of Into the Spider-Verse, if you were unaware of that. That was him. That was also Oscar Isaac. Yay! Uh, but in this, um, one of these movies, who really knows which one she's going to show up in, but we are also going to see Jessica Drew's Spider-Woman. So she's the Spider-Woman, the main Spider-Woman, the first, technically. Um, she is going to be voiced by Issa Rae, who is a phenomenal actress and comedian. Very funny. Um, so I think that's going to be super exciting, and those are just two of the characters that we know are already going to be in this movie. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a couple of repeats from uh, the Into the Spider-Verse movie as well. Gwen, of course, I have no doubt will be back. And maybe some others. So this is um, a six-month difference, you know, if it's going to be make it more of a smooth transition with part two and it's going to make it more of a finished project, perhaps, give them that much more time to perfect it. I'm fine with waiting. News on the Batgirl movie this week is really just that there is news pending. News regarding the decisions of how they're going to be releasing this. Uh, to specify, Warner is considering moving Batgirl from its already stated HBO Max release and changing that to being a theater release. That might not really seem to be a very big deal, but that actually does mean a couple of things here. First off, we have a quote from Matthew Belloni. Not like Belloni the meat. It's B-E-L-O-N-I. I'm pretty sure it's just pronounced Belloni. Um, <laughs> but he he's... I'm not sure who he is. He's related to the Batgirl project somehow. I, I couldn't find who he was doesn't matter he i'm sure it matters but anyway his quote that he has here is that uh, his re his thought on the reasoning for this is that perhaps tony emmerich and his warners team are thinking now is the time to invest a bit more money into batgirl perhaps up the visual effects and the music budget and the planned marketing spend and give the movie a theatrical run first uh, to add to that the batman was just released on hbo max and is doing super well if social media is to mean anything um, and what they're calling the fall of Netflix has people wondering if streaming is really going to be the end all of media the be all end all excuse me um, because as I'm sure a lot of people have noticed the flat the the flatness of streaming first films as well as the uh, flatness of Netflix recently and other streaming platforms. Uh, that's what I believe what they're referring to as the fall of Netflix. Um, so perhaps a, a Warner, it'd be Warner, is just looking into a backup plan for if streaming starts to take a downward turn and if theaters really end up being um, integral part of movie releases again, I guess. Aside from that, in case you were forgotten, you had forgotten, uh, Batgirl is going to star, well, does star, Leslie Grace as Barbara G Gordon, aka Batgirl, J.K. Simmons as James Gordon, which is awesome, again, of course, Brendan Fraser as Firefly, um, the, the, the character Firefly. I know this is a nerd podcast, so that name can bring up a lot of other thoughts. 
um, the character villain Firefly from DC Comics is what we're talking about. Also, um, they spelled his name wrong. This article that I was reading this from. But anyway, um, the, the, the details of the Warner stuff reading that from. But anyway, it also stars Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, who, by the way, um, his, the first pictures of his outfit from, I guess it would have been Batgirl, um, they leaked and it looks exactly like it did in the, you know, in 89, which is not a compliment. (laughs) I'm kind of wondering why they're going in that direction, but, um, you know, whatever. We'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but 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 if they that's just what I'm thinking. Like if they if they're moving it to theaters, they're probably going to be thinking it's going to be doing way better, right? And so they're going to cash in on it in the best way they can, which, as far as I know, would be theaters. Um, so maybe the Keaton bat suit is a flashback scene. <laughs> I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. And I know somebody listening to this is pissed at me right now for making fun of the Keaton back suit. Not sorry. It looks like it's from 1989 and that is not a compliment. It's 2022. On that note, actually, has anybody considered the Batgirl movie being like not modern times? I didn't really think about that. I don't know if there's a reason for it. J.K. Simmons would suggest modern, but is it really going to be connected to that the Snyderverse? Probably not, right? It's all, it's all. Oh, and I didn't talk about the Ezra Miller stuff. Ezra Miller just seems to be bl- banned from Hawaii um, and also from women because hasn't everyone that they've beaten up or hit or whatever been female? <laughs> questionable muy questionable but anyway let's let's move on from this and discuss something even more controversial and that is the disney versus government of florida situation now to sum up if you're unaware somehow um basically you know how disney like is super invested in Florida, um, and they've are they've always made donations to everybody on all political sides in Florida because they they want to keep good Florida, you know. And then Florida's putting out this this bill, which is pretty atrocious, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, about it's it's a very homophobic bill, and Disney was under a lot of pressure to say something about it, and finally they did. They spoke up and were like, "Yeah, this is not great. We don't support that." Um, and so, in response, Florida lawmakers are um, petty as always, and they are um, trying to basically um, take away all of the. It, you see the phrase "special privileges." Um, stuff like that, districts, things like that, those phrases tossed around in this subject a lot. But basically what it is, I did take hospitality. I am, I do have a bachelor's of science in hospitality management, so I do know what I'm talking about here. Um, just throwing that in there. Um, took a lot of classes that covered the shit, but, um, basically Disney owns a great section of Florida and runs it as their own private government. There's a funny TikTok that I saw a couple of weeks ago about this girl who was fooling, not 
like fooling around, fooling around, but she was like messing around in Florida and doing, you know, hoodlum shit or whatever. And, um, because it was in a Disney district, she ended up going to jail for some amount of time and is banned from all Disney locations always ever. Um, so Disney is not kidding around and yes, they do, um, they do cover a lot, <laughs> a lot of infrastructure in many areas in Florida. And that's not to mention how they employ so many people. They pay X amount in taxes. Um, they have deep, 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 deep roots in Florida that to be honest, Florida cannot afford to lose. Now, do I think that Disney can afford to move Ford? Yes, they could afford to move, but I don't think it's in their interests to leave Florida and start up a new Disney world somewhere else. That would be a ludicrously expensive and time consuming endeavor. But with all of this stuff happening in Florida, not to mention climate change, bringing on environmental issues, that's why people have brought Disney leaving Florida into the discussion. And again, what Florida is trying to do here to retaliate for Disney simply saying that they don't like this atrocious bill that we'll discuss in just a minute again. Um, Florida is trying to retaliate for that uh, by taking away Disney's right to basically treat themselves as their own government in the places where they run, which like I said, covers employing people, paying taxes, paying for infrastructure across areas of Florida. So if they take away those rights from Disney, those special privileges, um, all of that lands, everything they pay for, for Florida, guess who that lands on? The people of Florida. Um, and if the article that I was reading uh, has anything right, then uh, guess how much money that's going to cost the people of Florida in taxes? A billion dollars. That is billion with a B. Um, it's going to, yeah. So <laughs> not only would cutting out the special rights district make Disney consider, not make them, but could possibly make them consider um, retaliating in their own way, against Florida, whatever that may be. Um, it will also piss off a lot of taxpaying people, not to mention employees of Disney, um, because of the amount that's going to land on them financially. And to be clear, these, this bill that we are talking about is the quote unquote, don't say gay Florida bill. And to be completely clear, I've said this a few times, it is entirely atrocious. Um, they don't... How do I explain this? They, they don't want um, any kind of queer sexuality to be mentioned around kids, I guess, is what it is. And they're saying that, you know, Disney supports pedos for not agreeing with that. Um... <clears throat> That would, to sum that up, they're saying that queerness in any way is inappropriate for children because it deals with sexuality. Um, to respond to that is the most obvious thing I think that anybody could think of, which is, um, there's actually a really cute webcomic posted by uh, somebody who I follow. 
All right, I pulled it up. It is by Matty Lubchansky, or something vaguely pronounced like that, um, who is a non-binary co- uh, webcomic artist, and this is what the little comic is. It is exactly what I was feeling about this entire scenario. You have a, um, a woman with a baby and a man and they both have kids at a park and they're talking outside the kids park right and the lady says so anyway me and my wife were and he goes whoa 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 hey you can't say those words in front of my precious caleb he's just a child children should not hear about sexual sexuality or gender we have to protect them you perverts disgust me and then you he looks over at the park and yells to the kid who's playing with the little girl Hey, what do you got there, buddy? A little girlfriend? That's my lady killer. Awooga! The point is, people people make references to romantic relationships between men and women of every age, children or not, all the time, and that's okay. So why is it not okay to do that if it's not a man or a woman? Their reaction also... um, (laughs) certain people uh, were quoted as saying that basically next it will be Mickey and Pluto going at it uh, on the Disney Channel or something like that. Well, that is obviously entirely offensive, Um, but it does point out what it is that they have the issue with when it comes down to it. And that is, I mean, in my mind, it comes down to um, the gayness and... (laughs) Male, male anal sex is what I'm saying here. Um, and they are somehow obsessed with that. Either it's something that they are repressed or something. I don't know. I, I really couldn't tell you. They need a psychologist severely. Um, because you mentioned gayness in any way. What is the first thing their minds immediately go to? Um, well, pedophilia, and, which would mean romantic relations with children and sex and... Why is that what you relate gayness to? Because for whatever reason, you can't separate it from sexual acts. You can't separate the idea of gayness from sexual acts. While you here, you are having 15 children, you know, it's atrocious. It's horrifying. um, And it needs to not be allowed. But with the whole situation with Disney, um, to sum up... (laughs) Oh, um, I, I, I just hope they, uh, they do something, you know, I don't think they're just going to sit back and be like, okay, yeah, we're just going to let them take away all our stuff and not do anything in retaliation because they retaliated about our opinions when they're the ones trying to actually take things away, take opportunities away from queer people. So yeah. (laughs) And in case this was not explicitly clear, this podcast is incredibly pro-everything LGBTQ+. Um, I I hope that is always clear. Um, And so that's why I try to come out as strongly as I can in defense. Um, When it's appropriate, this was definitely time. (laughs) After this discussion's been going on for a few weeks, it was definitely time to address this. So um, my, my position on that was clear that incredibly supportive of everything queer being a queer person myself um and just not supportive of anything that the politicians of florida are doing moving on to the rumored werewolf by night casting this casting is for 
was a really pathetic drum roll. Elsa Bloodstone, which is very exciting. She is apparently going to be played by Laura Donnelly from The Nevers. I believe she also played a character on Outlander. Um, I think she's a decent enough actress. Uh, I, could, I don't really know that much about her myself, but... Even though this is just a rumor, it is exciting to think that we may get Elsa Bloodstone in the MCU, even if it is just in the Werewolf by Night TV show. Um, she is a monster hunter who follows in her father's footsteps, and she's been a member of the Midnight Suns, Next Wave, Fearless Defenders, and Doom's Avengers, as well as having deep historical ties with Doctor Strange and other mystical characters like Blade, of course. Um, who I honestly thought that we would see her first in something for Blade, but I guess it does make sense in a way that she would show up here in something for Werewolf by Night because uh, she and that character were on the same Legion of Monsters team, which was the 2010 series written by Dennis Hallam, aka Hopeless, um, which was volume two of the series, and it only ran for four issues, but it starred Elsa, of course, Werewolf by Night, of course, and then Morbius, Manphibian, and I don't really know how to pronounce it, but it looks like Nkantu, the Living Mummy. Um, and in the past, Legion of Monsters was made up of various characters that include Frankencastle, which is a, um, I guess you would say zombified version of Frank Castle, uh, Man-Thing, Satana, and a lot of other really legendary uh, monster characters that are all in the realm of Doctor Strange and Blade and things like that. Um, so theoretically we could be getting a Legion of Monsters team or we could be getting, gosh, any number of semi-obscure teams. Um, I mean, Elsa was in Damnation. She was, um, actually that was a team I don't know if the team had a name, but it was the Doctor Strange Damnation story. She was in that, um, obviously, Fearless Defender. She, they could do a different Defenders team with Blade. There's the Midnight Suns they could do a spin on. Um, but it's really cool to see that they're definitely, you know, with every little rumor and bit of news and things that we're getting for a lot of the... Uh, all, well, a good portion of the, the future MCU stuff, it seems to be headed in the same kind of... Uh, darker direction. So that's something that I definitely look forward to seeing more of that side of the Marvel Universe explored. The next bit of MCU rumors that we have is a bit more generic, uh, but it deals with Love and Thunder slash the future of Thor movies, I guess, if that be a thing that we end up having more of. Um, and this is that it's not really a specific rumor, but basically um, there have been rumors about Thor's half-sister from the comics, Angela, being cast in Love and Thunder. Um, these rumors have been pretty persistent since as far back as 2019, um, putting out pulling out, I guess, an evidence, a few different casting calls for a few different names of characters, which of course could all be changed, um, or they could just be changing her name for the sake of the story. I'll get into who Angela is in a little bit, um, but I think that she would make a great love interest for King Valkyrie in Love and Thunder if 
we were to see her there. Um, she's also often a companion to the Guardians of the Galaxy and is a close-ish-ish, you know, as far as Gamora and Angela can have friends. Close-ish friend with Gamora. Um, and of course, they will be appearing Guardians in Love and Thunder. And then she has um, an ex-girlfriend named Sarah, S-E-R-A, as in Sarah Frim, being the children of angels and um, humans. Uh, it's just a reference. It's not what she is. She is actually a trans angel from heaven, which is where Angela's from. I'll get into that in a minute. Um, and she joined up with Yondu after she broke up with and Angela. So that's just another connection. Um, and another connection to just bring in more reasons why it would make sense to see her. Um, the Asgardians of the Galaxy team was, uh, it's only been one version of that team, and it was her with uh, teaming up with Valkyrie, who was the Brunhilde version, of course, in the comics. Uh, the, the junior Thunderstrike version was Thunderstrike's son, also Thunderstrike. Uh, and a couple other relevant players like Throg, who, yes, is a character, and I love him. Um... I guess I will start, I was going to start with like how to make her work in the MCU, but I guess I should explain who she is first. Um, but Angela, as she is right now in the comics, she is Thor's half-sister. She is uh, the child of the all-mother, all-mother, all-mother all and all-father. Um, for her history as a character, um, she, it, it's a bit of a long, long story, but we'll, we'll do this first so you can have some context. Um, Angela was created as a character for Spawn at Image Comics in 1994, I believe. She was created by Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane for Spawn number nine, which was her first appearance as well as her first cover appearance. The issue introduced her as one of Heaven's Legions, um, as opposed to those of Hell, aka the Spawns. Normally one of, if not the best of those who hunt the hell spawn, Angela in this issue goes up against, I'm actually not sure if it's Al Simmons' spawn, because I'm pretty sure he gets wiped out in the end by something else, but uh, she goes up against a spawn and is surprised that she winds up barely escaping with her life. A year or so later, Angela was given a three-issue solo series spinning out of Spawn number nine, written by Neil Gaiman and drawn by Greg Capullo. The series is noteworthy for a number of reasons, but mostly found Angela on the outs from her own people, teaming up with Al Simmons' Spawn to win the day to go off and then go off on her own in the end. She was a kind of... Um, like a cool mirror to spawn in a way, but then they ended up killing her off, of course, in issue 100 by a, I believe, a sword through the chest, which is a classic female death trope. <laughs> uh, not in a positive way. And then in 2000... I want to say it was 2005, but I didn't actually look that up. Uh, Gaiman and McFarlane, Todd and Neil, went to court. Well, Gaiman took McFarlane to court over the ownership of Angela. As Gaiman was the writer and came up with the idea for her, he won the case. Much to the chagrin of many quote-unquote fans, but to my utter delight and entertainment, Gaiman immediately then turned around and sold Angela's character rights to... Marvel Comics. I have had a number of people try to tell me that that was a bad idea and uh, that Gaiman is a prat for taking McFarlane to court, blah blah blah, but let us be clear. McFarlane didn't create her. He only killed her to use her death as character development for Al's spawn. So 
meh. And to add to that, I've also heard claims that Marvel hasn't done enough with her since taking her on, and hence, you know, she should have stayed with Image the whole time. But first off, that was not what the court case was over. Second, Marvel actually has been doing a lot with her since she came to the 616 in 2013. But everyone ignores the series that she shows up in. There were there have been two of her own. It was Angela Asgard's Assassin in 2015 and Angela, Queen of Hell, in 2016. Then she had Asgardians of the Galaxy in 2018, and then Strike Force in 2019. All low number series, none of them planned that way, just canceled too soon because you idiots wouldn't buy them. <laughs> so Marvel really has been trying to get Angela out there, but readers simply don't support the comics that she shows up in. And that's not at all to even mention the many anthologies of Marvel's voices issues that she's appeared in as well, because she is a queer female character and an utter badass. So of course they're trying to use her, but what? People just aren't reading it. She's even been in some recent Thor stuff by Donny Cates, and you know I don't say anything to praise Donny Cates unless I really mean it. So that is who Angela is as a character history. But as for how to bring her into the MCU, I already mentioned, you know, she is the... Um, she is a queer woman. She could make a great love interest for King Valkyrie. Um, she is often a companion to the Guardians, friend of Gamora... Um, and her ex-girlfriend went off to join Yondu and his team after they broke up. So there's already connections there. But as to how her make her work into becoming a character in the MCU, because remember, we already have, um, I, uh, I guess it would be th half-sister? I'm not sure who in canon MCU Thor's mom is. I don't really, honestly, know if I care enough. But, um... <laughs> we know that Hela was the firstborn child of Odin and his sister. So this is my whole thing on how to make her work and to keep all of that still without messing any of the canon up, right? Okay, so in Avengers Endgame, when Thor is visiting the past Asgard to take the hammer um, and the reality stone, I guess, I guess it was the reality stone, right? Or was it the space stone? Honestly, I don't care. Um, one of the stones. He runs into his mother, uh, Frigga, I, I believe is his MCU mother for real. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's how it works. Because in the comics, she's not, right? Anyway, he runs into her and she can tell that it is a, that he is a Thor out of time. Because in her words, quote, I was raised by witches, boy. I see with more than eyes and you know that. I loved that line when she said it, and now I have more reasons to love it with this theory. Okay, the second important piece of information that you need to know for this theory comes from Thor Ragnarok. It's a point made by Hela um, when it was said that, whoever said it, that Hela is Odin's firstborn. Specifically, it doesn't mention anything about Frigga. I, 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 put, it, I put emphasis on the wrong word. The <laughs> emphasis was supposed to be on Odin's firstborn. Um, that being because it doesn't mention anything about Frigga, his wife, right? Um, so in the comics, Angela is the firstborn of Freya and Odin, born before Thor, um, and she was stolen away as a infant by Odin's enemies. If you have heard of the Nine Realms in Adgar, Ad oh my gosh, Asgardian mythos. 
Um, which, of course, then is in the comics just the same way, or a similar way at least. Um, with Angela, Marvel then added a tenth realm, a realm called Heaven, H-E-V-A-N, made up of intensely fierce winged warrior women called angels. When the legions of this heaven stole Angela away, well, that wasn't her name, her name was Aldrif, away and made it look as though she had been killed by their army, Odin cut off the tenth realm from the rest, banishing him for all time. Of course, it never works out that way. In the aftermath of 2013's Age of Ultron, rips in reality, space, and time cracked open that wall between the realms, sucking Angela through to the 616. The fiercest of all angel warriors, Angela was not accepted by mother, father, or brother upon her arrival, and remained a fairly stoic character for some time. More recently, in various Thor comics, Angela has teamed up with her mother, two single battle bitches out there killing it, and she has loosened up just the tiniest bit. So, to sum up this segment of the news um basically if it even begins to slightly look like the mcu uh version of her might be appearing in love and thunder the tiniest bit of possibly looking like that um i will definitely definitely be making the july podcast special about her um uh i will get a lot of of, of joy and satisfaction from that because she is like i said not just a battle bitch but a fierce winged warrior. Well, she's not winged, which is a whole other thing I could get into when I talk about her on her special. Because she is really cool. Okay. As for the Multiverse of Madness Illuminati lineup rumors, this comes from um, online scooper Daniel RPK, who has a Patreon, I believe, and people, I guess, leak what he posts as patrons, so that's what this comes for. So take everything with a bit of a grain of salt, however, there have been a number of times where his leaks have come out to be completely true, so, um, grain of salt, but still, we'll see. To start off, we are pretty far past speculating if the Illuminati will be appearing in Multiverse of Madness, so that's what gives this any ground. Rumors of Maria Rambeau's turn have long since been coming. Clea's casting, I'd hope by now, to be true, but I worry about them giving her a proper introduction and representation. Blackport's, Black Bolt's portrayal in the Inhuman show sucked. We know Patrick Stewart is back as Charles Xavier. And then the Krasinski, uh, the Krasinski casting sounds like total fan fiction. Honestly, all of this pretty much sounds like a fan fiction Illuminati lineup to me, so I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I do like that there are a few, well, more than a few women on the list. It is half women, actually, uh, which is way more than the comics can say. Looks angrily at Marvel editors. Um, anyway, so what they're saying, just list them off really quick. We're going to have John Krasinski as Mr. Fantastic, Anson Mount as Black Bolt, Haley Atwell as Captain Carter, Lashana Lynch as Maria Rambeau, Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier, and Charlize Theron as Clea. Starting off at the top of that list, John Krasinski playing Reed Richards as Mr. Fantastic. Uh, Mr. Fantastic was, of course, an original member of the comic book Illuminati, Krasinski has been called for as uh, Reed for probably over a decade now. <laughs> 
um, especially with his marriage to Emily Blunt, who then for a while had blonde hair or possibly still does. I don't know or care. Um, and so they were like, oh my gosh, read Richard Sue Storm. And I will admit for myself, I was even on that hype train for a while. Um, but as I have grown and learned and realized there's more to movies than white people, um, I feel like they could just do a, a bit more creative job in casting. He could do a great job as Reed, I'm sure. It's just not very creative. Um, I would rather not have him as the main MCU Reed, but who is to say if any of these characters are going to remain in the MCU after this movie, right? Anson Mount as Black Bolt, Black Bolt being an original member of the uh, Illuminati, again, from the comics. Uh, his full name, Black uh, Blackagar Bolt Gagan. Oh, sorry, I said that wrong. I don't have it written down. I'm trying to... Blackagar Bolt Agen. Bolt Agen. Yeah, Bolt Agen. Um, so it's not, people make the joke, why is he called Black Bolt if all the other black characters are like black people? <laughs> it's because his name is Black Agar or Black Agar or something, however you pronounce it. It's some stupid made up inhuman name, okay? <laughs> He's the king of their people. Of course, he had to have a ridiculous name, uh, which they then foreshorten into a hero name. I, I guess it checks out. Uh, I am a fan of the Inhumans, not the show. God, no. Uh, but the characters, I, I would like to see them show back up in the comics. And I'm getting really, really off topic here. Um, but anyway, what I was going to say was that if they're picking and choosing characters from that truly rancid and human show, they should have gone with Medusa because she did a better job with the travesty that she was given. Um, the show did go by with a whimper and a silent but deadly fart in, I believe, 2017, is what Google told me at least, uh, featuring the entire comic royal family and with a great cast to boot. So why did it fail so horribly? I blame that on the writing, production, and character design, which were all truly atrocious. Um, I think I've said atrocious a lot in this to be clear on that note, um, the don't say gay bill is more atrocious than this fictional world being portrayed poorly. Just, they're not on the same level, just to clarify. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but in any case, um, just, it was a absolute disaster. Um, but it does bring up the question, how will the Inhumans, assuming that they appear as more than just him or he is an Inhuman, I guess, and they mentioned that, uh, how will they fit into the MCU as a whole? Will he be a character from another universe? The only universe where Inhumans exist. Inhumans don't exist in the 616, but maybe they will by the end of the movie. All valid questions. Um, moving on from him, though, we have then Haley Atwell coming as Captain Carter. Good old Peggy Carter, who we first saw in... Oh, dear over a decade ago in the Captain America movie. Damn, that was really that long ago. It was about a decade-ish ago, um, where she played Peggy Carter, classic, you know, role from the, for the movie there. Um, and then we had her on her, um, it was like a Disney, not, it was not, this wasn't Disney Plus, but it was like an ABC show at the time for Haley Atwell's Peggy Carter. They followed her for a season, I believe. It was just one season possibly two. I honestly don't know. Um, so obviously, you know, and then she 
she's been in the animated stuff as well. She is going to be a counterpart to Captain America, would be my guess, who is a founding member of the Illuminati, but he is not on the team for long. They end up wiping his mind and kicking him out so he can't tell people that they exist. So hopefully that doesn't happen with her. Obviously, um, I'm very happy that Haley Atwell is still around, though I am very curious as how she'll read as Captain Carter, uh, the, Ca Captain Carter the Super Soldier specifically, on screen in live action. Um, on that note, is she coming from the What If universe that we saw in the animated show? Um, because it's a little bit... It's different than what they did with her in the comics. Um, the animated show, they had her go into a different dimension and then she pops through the space stone or whatever it was out of the Tesseract, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious if which, which universe she originates from. We know, we know that like Steve, Peggy does have a very grounded set of moral values. So it'll be interesting to see why she's decided to make camp with the other members of the Illuminati who are traditionally a bit sketchy in the comics at least. Um, either I would guess a massive multiversal threat has forced her hand or this is a Captain Carter with a much more hands-on approach to her whole universe, not just Earth. Lashana Lynch as Maria Rambeau. I'm guessing is possibly going to be a counterpart to Tony Stark, founding member of the comic book Illuminati. Um, the images that we saw of her in the Multiverse of Madness trailer as Captain Marvel were the images that all those friggin', I'm sorry, losers were, um... They were trying to say that it was infamous Iron Man, which made no sense for so many reasons. Um, and I won't go into why right now, but it was just really dumb and made no sense. Um, and they were beating that uh, wagon, beating that drum for like up until this leak came out. <laughs> they were insisting that that was going to be infamous Iron Man. And it, I'm pretty sure everybody knows that it knew from the start it wasn't going to be him, but... Um, they insisting, so I'm glad it's not that officially, more or less. Um, she is going to be acting as Captain Marvel, likely from another reality or timeline or something. Uh, Maria Rambeau does not have a very big role in the comics, but she first appears in Avengers number 246 in May 1984 as the mother of, of course, Monica Rambeau, who was Spect uh, the first Captain Marvel, the first female Captain Marvel, and then Spectrum and Pulsar and a few other different titles down the line. And I have said it before, and I will be continuing to say it again, the MCU has purposely set up a very awkward situation between Carol, Maria, and Monica. Let's go over the timeline. Carol disappears in the 90s. Carol reappears as Captain Marvel. Maria has that whole speech to her in Captain Marvel about losing her and how she can't lose her again. Carol promises that that will never happen. Carol then leaves them again for being a space cop or whatever. Carol then reappears at the start of the snap, presumably for the first time in 20 plus years. She saves Tony and then goes back for the five years remaining of the snap. Meanwhile, Maria Rambeau is dying in the hospital and the snap takes Monica away. When Monica returns five years later, her mother Maria has died, presumably alone. Carol has been gone that whole time, we can assume, once again left her friend alone, this time to die alone. 
now Maria from another universe or another timeline is about to become a hero, will we see her interact with Carol, Carol or Monica of the MCU? Um, granted, if it's Maria who becomes Captain Marvel, she will obviously have a different um, history with Carol and her daughter than the MCU versions do, but either way, uh, the Ms. Marvel series is starting in early June, so we could potentially see a connection to her or between her and the other ladies in Multiverse of Madness in just, like, what, two weeks-ish? Week and a half-ish? I don't know, something like that. Um, and if we don't get it before then, well, we will definitely be seeing Carol and Monica hash their shit out in the Marvels, which is, of course, the Captain Marvel sequel coming out in early 2023. And remember, kids, no one ever said they had to be buddies right off. I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Then we have Patrick Stewart as Professor X, of course, an original member of the Illuminati. Um, I think it is going to be pretty cool to have him show up in the MCU. I'm not going to lie. I was raised-ish on the original Foxman movies as the first X-Men that I really knew. You know, I knew stuff like who Xavier and Magneto were, like, from the womb, it seems. Um, but this is my first, like, time seeing them in action, really, was those movies. Um, so I'll always have a soft spot for it. I'm not saying they were great. Definitely not. Uh, just that I liked them when I was a kid. Not so much the newer ones. Um, does this, though, make me a hypocrite? I give people shit for fanboying over the two other Spider-Men in No Way Home, but here I am liking them bringing back Patrick Stewart's Professor X into the MCU. I guess I feel like it's a little different because this movie is literally called Multiverse of Madness and the Illuminati would make sense to appear in this scenario that they've built out for Strange and everything. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still... I don't know. Let me know what you think. Um, and then the Black Bolt question also comes up here as well. Will Xavier be from a universe where mutants already exist and they'll stay in their own place? Is he from the Foxman universe or something parallel? And will the Descartes theory of many a dork on Twitter come true and all of their universes will smash together as one at the end of Multiverse of Madness, bringing all of these characters together? I think being stingy with who gets included or not would be kind of dumb at that point, but we'll just have to wait and see. Um, that is honestly looking like it's probably going to be what happens in any case. And finally, Charlize Theron as Clea being the counterpart to Strange's original membership in the Illuminati in the comics. Obviously, I am totally pro Clea, but I am slightly concerned over her portrayal in a movie that already has so much going on in it. What about the dynamic of Clea and the other Illuminati members? Would she get along with them? We know from the comics that she's always a helpful resource to other women, always. So hopefully they show her connection to the feminine by having her close ally with Peggy and or Maria. Charlize Theron is known for playing... She, she's a phenomenal actress, really, but she's great with the kind of darker roles, so I don't even hesitate to guess that she will be a darker portrayal of Clea than we're just seeing for sure. Hopefully not unhinged or vile in any way, but strong and defensive of women. Will she have rule of the dark dimension these days? Will Umar be mentioned or her relation to Dormammu? I think probably the latter at the very least, because that would be the connection that Strange would need to give her context of any kind. As for her outfit, I'm still betting that the Clea look we'll see uh, will be the, the one that we saw debuting in Death of Doctor Strange. 
which I still think was designed specifically with the MCU in mind. But then you have the question, which came first, the MCU look or the comic update? We may never know. Um, and I can really see Theron easily pulling off a bleach blonde pixie cut look for Clea. Um, I just can't really see them giving her anything too unusual as far as her hairstyling goes. Um, the only other bit of additional Multiverse of Madness speculation I wanted to throw in here at the end of the news segment was that the Living Tribunal might have made an appearance in a recent teaser clip for Multiverse of Madness. Uh, they are a three-faced being that deals out cosmic judgment, as their name somewhat suggests. They also appeared in Loki as an Easter egg, so it's not too surprising that they would show up in the main MCU. Well, show up alive, because they weren't alive in that part, uh, in the MCU. Well, it was a statue of them, JK. It was a statue. It wasn't them dead. Um, so it makes sense that we would eventually see them, them actually them, <laughs> in the MCU at some point. For the comic book picks this week, um, we are doing just a couple. It is Bolero number four, Catwoman Lonely City number three, Homesick Pilots number 14, Catwoman number 42, and though I'm not going to give the preface as intensely as I did on the last episode, uh, The Secret History of the War on Weed number one. Starting off, though, with Bolero number four, which I would definitely say is my pick of the week. Um, issue five is going to be the final issue here, so this was the penultimate issue. Uh, where we did get the backstory of Devon and Nat. They met in high school when Nat had already started transitioning. Devon and her mom never got along, but her mom liked Nat, and Nat resented her- well, sorry, Devon resented Nat a little bit for that, and Nat resented Devon for having a dad who was not dead. That came out a lot darker than I intended. Um, Amina, who is their other friend who Devin actually slept with in the last issue, she came into their lives and was the perfect third friend to complete the outfit. Devin's drinking started getting out of control, so they tried to rekindle things between her and Nat. It did work out for a little while, but then one night they had a really bad fight and Devin said something unforgivable. If I was to guess, um, Nat is a trans character. I would assume it had something to do with that because that would fall along those lines of the kind of unforgivable thing that they were describing, but not outwardly saying what she said. Um, at the end of the conversation that Nat is having here with Capgrass, or is it Capgrass? Still not sure. He tells her that sometimes he sees couples that come to him and then go wander the universes together, whereas uh, Devin had been going by herself. And then when Nat returns home, she and Devin talk, and it is more or less decided that they are finished as a couple. Um, but she still tells Devin what Capgrass said, that somewhere out there, the two of them made it work and are traveling the universes together. Um, at the end of the issue, Nat gets a job in another city, so they say goodbye, and Devin throws her Capgrass key into the ocean. I was very happy to find out that Catwoman Lonely City number three was not the final issue, so that's exciting. We're getting another issue in August. Uh, in this issue, we learn that Selena's only friend in prison was beaten to death, which is pretty awful. Um, and then meanwhile, in modern times for this comic, Ivy is hooking up with some young fighter in Gotham, and we can see that she she's able to change her appearance from green skin to white, per white people skin at will, it looks like. 
Uh, Selena and her team steal a bit of Clayface from Arkham Prison, but in the getaway, they barely escape a trap and Croc ends up getting shot, helping the rest of them escape. And Selena has to basically mercy kill him, which is a super upsetting thing. Um, very emotional. So then Selena and the Riddler end up hooking up. They steal an ancient mask and give it to Jason Blood as payment for his help. It reveals that the mask is actually the helmet of Dr. Fate. When Selena ends up in a little bit of a pickle, she runs through a Gotham, uh, through Gotham City and finds herself in the middle of a protest. Protesters help keep the cops occupied while she escapes. It winds up as a full-scale riot with police shooting tank artillery wherever and at whoever. Harvey Dent is clearly fixated on becoming a good man, which is be clearly becoming less and less easy as everyone supporting his political campaign slowly drops out from underneath him. The Selena and her crew end up using the piece of clay face to make a face for Jason Blood. They they fake their way into wherever it is, Gotham, uh, the, the, the Wayne Manor area, and find the entrance to the Batcave with the help of Poison Ivy. When Jason calls on Etrigan the Demon, which he is very unwilling to do, but he does it anyway, he turns to dust, R.I.P. Jason. Epitrican is now free. The only other thing from the issue I wanted to mention was that they are still giving little teases of what actually went down on Fool's Night 10 years ago. Um, and the one bit of detail we get, two bits of details that we get in this issue are that Tim Drake was the current Robin and Alfred had recently died. Homesick Pilots issue 14 was the penultimate issue, another one this week. Uh, issue 15 will be the finale. In this issue, the old James house was built. We see it was built by the toilet seat ghost's father to, in her words, keep her with him. When she died in time, he brought Ami as a replacement, the ghost girl says. But the James ghost, who is the horseshoe ghost, gets the other ghost in the house to take her down, trapping her again. Ami points out that this is not right. This is not what his daughter wants. But the house is complete now with all the ghosts returned to it. The final ghost built it into a builds it up into a new kind of mech house weapon to fight Meg's ghost mech. They eat her, <laughs> end up putting her in like endless tunnels inside of it for all time. So that sucks for her. Uh, meanwhile, Rip is dying inside the house now with Ami and their other friends, and they're kind of just stuck there. The house ends up walking back to where it all began, goes back to being just a normal house, complete with its ghosts so they can have a happy, normal life. Then the army arrives, to be concluded. Now, the one thing that I ask when I talk about the secret history of the war on weed is that you uh, do not immediately jump to judgment because there, I can guarantee you the assumptions that you might have about uh, the subject are wrong. Um, and there is a lot of a lot, a lot that you could learn, um, and I would definitely recommend you do so. But uh, The Secret History of the War on Weed, number one, turns out to be a fun story about a soldier who learns that weed is not the danger. The corporations opposing it are because they have nefarious intent. Weed is just weed. And it ends with a clear message that no one should be in jail for weed, especially when it's being legalized all over the world. It says, America can do better, which, god damn it, that ain't the, if that ain't the truth can but will that's the question and then it ends with scott mctiernan will return so i guess they're planning on making another one so that's kind of cool 
Catwoman number 42, again, was super meh. I could tell that there was some emotional stuff going on uh, in the end there, but I have absolutely no connection to the character in question, so I felt nothing. Moving on to the comic book picks for this week. These are things that are coming out for DC Comics on the 26th and for everything else on the 27th. Uh, we have a couple of solicitations for the number ones and the more exciting stuff. And then the rest will just kind of run through the details that you'll need to know to pick it out. Uh, starting off with Vermilion number zero. It says, warning, subject matter is heavy and extremely dark in nature. We follow the young Persephone over one long and twisting night as it turns into one of abuse and destruction after meeting a mysterious figure. Um, the mysterious figure you can guess is Hades. If you're not familiar, Persephone is a character of Greek myth. Uh, this is coming from a writer and artist called Brow, who is apparently known for Vamp Blade. And it is out of Behemoth Comics. Triskel number one is from Scout Comics by Philippe Pan and Monaramis. Is that dude's name? It is a one shot and it says When young Alec Ellis is granted a magical gift on Sam Sawin Night, the scales of power on the island of Albion are inadvertently shifted. Now, together with his friends, he is about to embark on a dangerous journey that shall decide the fate of their entire kingdom. Set in a medieval world populated by characters and events from Celtic myths and legends, Triskel is a visually stunning journey into the world of once-forgotten oral traditions. It is an epic story of courage and friendship imbued with fascinating characters and steeped in the magic of Welsh and Irish folklore. Bloodstained Teeth number one comes from Christian Ward who is a fantastic artist. I'm excited to be able to support this his first uh, indie written project which is coming from Image Comics with artist Patrick Reynolds. It says Christian Ward the Eisner award-winning co-creator of Odyssey, Invisible Kingdom, and Machine Gun Wizards returns to Image with red-hot artist Patrick Reynolds of The Mask for an all-new ongoing series, a fast-paced 100 bullet style crime saga with fangs. Atticus Sloan, misanthrope, criminal, asshole, and vampire, lives in a world where blood isn't the only thing vamps crave, and for the right price, he'll make you a vampire too. After all, immortality isn't cheap. Knights of X number one is by Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn. It says, the quest begins here, where mutants are hated and feared once again. The gates to Otherworld are closed, and Captain Britain is trapped on the wrong side. Usurpers Merlin and his right-hand man, King Arthur, are now in control of Lunatic Citadel. Furies this, the size of sentinels raise villages to the ground in their hunt for the witch breed, which are mutants. Cut off from Krakoa, Betsy Braddock is Otherworld's only hero, and to save her people, Betsy must recruit a roundtable of her own. The Knights of X gather to restore the rightful order and rescue desperate mutants, but their quest is about to get so much bigger than that. This is the era of destiny, and the fate of Otherworld lies at the center of mutantkind's future. The Amazing Spider-Man number one. Let's take a second and find out what volume of ASM this is. Yep, that is volume six of ASM, and that's not including all of the other Spider, Peter Parker, etc. series titles that are out there as well. Uh, number one is going to be Legacy number 895 for Amazing Spider-Man, and I'm pretty sure that is just ASM, not any of the other titles. This is going to be kicking off the series by Zeb Wells and John Romita Jr. Uh, it says, what did Spider-Man do? 
Peter Parker's on the outs with the Fantastic Four. He's on the outs with the Avengers. He's on the outs with Aunt May. No one wants to see Spider-Man, except for Dr. Octopus. Ox on Spider-Man's tail, and the Master Planner has something truly terrible planned for when he gets his tentacles on Spidey. All that, and what does Tombstone have planned? Just for the time for the 60th anniversary, 2022 is Spider-Man's biggest year ever. Wow! <laughs> you can get covers by Mark Bagley and John Romita Sr., uh, Humberto Ramos, Art Germ, Rosebesh, Bengal, Travis Charis, Jim Chung, Chrissy Zulo, Gabriel Del Otto, Patrick Gleason, Greg Horn, Alan Davis, J. Scott Campbell, Joe Zusko, Romy Jones, Kale Wu, Inuk Lee, Lucio Perillo, Marco Mestrazo, Mike Mayhew, Peach Promoco, Nicoletta Baldari, Rian Gonzalez, Tyler Kirkham, and Scotty Young. Definitely couldn't have done that in one breath. Batman Beyond the White Knight number two of eight is coming out tomorrow. Well, it's coming out on the 26th by Sean Gordon Murphy, Sean Gordon Murphy, and Dave Stewart. This is a Black Label series from DC Comics. DC Black Label is what we're saying here. Uh, I also have the solicitation for this one because I'm excited for it. It says, The humble beginnings of Terry McGinnis are revealed as Bruce Wayne becomes Gotham's most wanted man. With the GTO on the case, does Captain Dick Grayson have what it takes to bring down his old mentor? It's father versus uh, father versus son in the next chapter of this fan favorite series. Plus, an unexpected ally from Bruce's past could hold the key to saving the future. Harley Quinn is back and ready to knock you out. Dun dun. Trial of the Amazons number two is continued from Trial of the Amazons Wonder Girl number two by Becky Cloonan, Michael Conrad, Vita Ayala, Stephanie Williams, and Joel Jones. It is also the finale of the Trial of the Amazons event. Step by Bloody Step number three from Image Comics by Simon Spurrier and Matt Lopez also comes out this week, as does Draculina number three by Christopher Priest and Michael S uh, St. Maria. I'm not sure. Dynamite Comics is publishing that one. We have Silk number four of five by Emily Kim and Takeshi Miyazawa. Dark Knights of Steel number six of 12. Also DC Black Label. Was it Black Label? That's a no, it is not Black Label, but it is by Tom Taylor and Yasmin Putri. And I have the solicit for this one too, because it's fun. Kingdoms are divided, monarchs have fallen, families have been torn apart. The Kingdom of Storms, the Amazons, and the Elves are on the brink of all-out war. Can Constantine, Lois Lane, and Harley Quinn stop what's coming? Or is the prophecy correct? Do Superman and his family have to die to save the world? Harley Quinn number 14 from Stephanie Phillips and Riley Rossmo has Harley in jail. Thor number 24 is legacy number 750 for Thor. Uh, it's going to have a bunch of stories in it by J. Michael Trzynski, uh Walt Simonson, art by Olivia Coppell, let's see, Dan Jurgens, let's see, I already said Walt Simonson, Al Ewing and Lee Garbett. Uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, and more. Oh, Jason Aaron, of course, and more. Monstrous 39, Micah falls into deeper, falls even deeper into her prison as she flees the devastating truths revealed in her memories. That's by Marjorie Lewinson Takeda from Image Comics, one of the best series ever. As is Saga, coming out with number 58 this week. Solicitation is three words, friends or enemies by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, and again from Image Comics. This week's, or last week's, episode of Moonlight, episode four, was titled The Tomb. And folks, I gotta tell you, we are an Egyptian history podcast now. Not really, but just for this segment. Um, 
things to go over about the episode. So we see that they put away the uh, the Ushapti of uh, Khonshu, and we see that they have already trapped eight other gods. Um, and I'm wondering if there is a coincidence that there's that number, because that's how many are normally in an Ennead. Nine, right? Nine with Khonshu. Um, I have to keep reminding myself that they don't necessarily have to go with the same gods or number of gods in their Ennead, and can also go beyond the, uh, the Heliopolis... Heliopolis. I said that right. Wow. That in the ad. Um, so that's why there could be why there's so many statues. And uh, as I kind of said already, Ushabtis are what the statues are called. Um, and we seem to have nine in that room. So nine gods are already trapped in stone. Um, this obviously leads you to the conclusion that the gods are being influenced by someone and all of the dissenters are slowly being put away for good. And at the distance that we saw them at, it is kind of impossible to tell which Ushapti is which god. We know the remaining gods of the Ennead are at least Horus, Osiris, Isis, Hathor, and Tefna, leaving the possible statues for Anubis, Seth, Atum, Shu, Thoth, Nut, and Geb, oh, and Ta, among other lesser gods. Um, I did see articles suggesting one of the Ushapti be Seth, who is often at odds with the other gods, but I think that it's more likely that he be the mystery figure causing the rift among the gods that we're witnessing. He's also a villain in um, a villain against Asgard in some of the comics, which does tie him to be a bit more relevant. And if you want to know more about um, the Egypt, if you want to read a comic about the Egyptian pantheon, uh, check out the graphic novel Pantheon by Hamish Steele. Um, for a really entertaining and mostly accurate portrayal of the uh, Egyptian god mythology. And I will have the link to buy that book in the description. Uh, there's a lot of similarities to the mummy in this issue. They go in there, they go inside the pyramid to find the tomb. Um, where did those priests slash mummifier dudes come from? Where did they go? Where did they come from, Cotton Eye Joe? I immediately regret that. Um, but really, it was never explained particularly. Are they just active if people are around? Um, and if they were trying to mummify all of Harrow's people, they really should have explained that better because that was a great horror point that was definitely just glazed over. It just didn't really touch on it at all. Um, and the horror movie cliches on that note really drove me crazy in this. Like, Layla trying to be quiet and, of course, immediately knocking into the canopic jars she had just looked at and seen that they were there. And then when she was walking along the edge, she just, like, stops when it starts collapsing instead of hurrying along before it all falls. And then nothing collapses when Harrow spends a solid few minutes sitting right on the ledge, literally with his legs dangling over. Just dumb horror movie cliches. Uh, but the, the the great tomb of um, Amit's last avatar is what they're looking for here. And when they find it, Stephen puts together that it is the lost tomb of Alexander the Great, who, yes, they are saying is Amit's avatar. In reality, though, Alexander associated himself with the king of the Egyptian gods as a king as his scale would, Amon. He claimed to be the son of Zeus Amon, which helped solidify his status as a living god amongst his people. Now, um, let's talk about how inaccurate that whole tomb situation actually was. Um, and first, I gotta note, 
before we get into this that I am always, I am always the one who is there reminding people that we're talking about aliens and space powers and super soldiers and gods and whatever, but like, this, that, this isn't a case of just respect um, or, or realism, and, and respect is a biggie here. It's a case of believability, or oftentimes in this, things even making sense. Um, so this has to less to do with the religion of those who lived in the era. So first off, I'm very disappointed to see Marvel bungle that up so poorly. No sarcophagus of any origin has ever been found sitting in a wide open room with a spotlight on its shiny gold exterior where you only open the one layer and there's your mummy. Egyptians Egyptians were buried in the way they, they were because of their beliefs of the afterlife, that what you are buried with follows you to the afterlife. So for their kings especially, they would always be buried with the masses of wealth they accumulated in their rule, as well as favorite pets, weapons and tools, food, jewelry, statues and figurines, anything that you can imagine that may have been important to them in life, they would be buried with. To add to this, and partly in an effort to avoid grave robbers, they would also make the tombs very hard to get to. One of the most famous discoveries, Tutankhamun, aka King Tut, was found down several hallways in a very cramped room. One reason the room was so cramped is the sarcophagus itself. You don't ever have the shining gold the, the, the gold shining from the middle of the room like they showed in this episode. There would be a wooden outer coffin outside the inner gilded one, all surrounded by a great stone case, the sarcophagus itself. The body of the mummy would be, the mummy that's inside, would be wrapped in fabric, sure, but certainly not of the quality that we saw in this episode. In fact, it looked like in over 2,000 years, there has been zero deterioration of materials, which is not physically possible. Uh, the wrappings wouldn't be visible as soon as you open the inner sarcophagus either, as the body would be covered in a wealth of jewels and all manner of fine adornments, including a massively heavy golden mask, which for Tut was modeled after the god Osiris and covered the whole head and upper chest. Um, again, I have some more, I have actually three, two links below in the description about um, coffins specifically for mummies, uh, for ancient Egyptian type situation. And then one specifically on Tut's gilded mask, if you're curious about that. Um, exceptions to these burial traditions included disgraced royalty such as Hatshepsut, um, whose son slash nephew Tutmos the Third or Tutmosis the Third made every attempt in her Hatshepsut's a she death to wipe her entire existence from history. He failed, of course, but still managed to disgrace her in a common, ungilded burial. Hatshepsut ruled Egypt after her husband died as pharaoh, usurping her stepson slash nephew, with a lot of that in those days, when she was meant to be his queen regent, aka watcher of the throne until he came of age. She dressed as a man, wore a false beard, and insisted on being called king and pharaoh. Her rule of about 21 years was the longest among ancient Egyptian women, ending in 1453 BC. She was one of the most prolific builder pharaohs of ancient Egypt, 
Egypt, commissioning hundreds of construction projects throughout both Upper and Lower Egypt. Almost every major museum in the world today has a collection of Hatshepsut statuary. Egypt's antiquities chief, Zahi Hawass, is a well-known historian and archaeologist whose name you'll see pop up fairly often in Egyptian archaeological, archaeological reports. For much of modern history, he has been at the forefront of, a di of identifying Hatshepsut's remains. In 2007, Hawass and his team announced the discovery of her body, ID'd from a mummy found over 100 years ago. The mummy is labeled KV-60, with the KV signifying which tomb the mummy was found in in the Valley of the Kings. Her sarcophagus was found separately at the KV-20 tomb with no mummy inside, along with the mummy of Tutmosis I, her father. Her mummy was found as one of two women in KV-60, one in a coffin inscribing her as a nurse, the other simply on the ground. The second mummy was found in the so-called queen's pose, with one arm placed diagonally across her chest. The burial chamber itself was left unfinished and was never decorated, what Hawass calls the perfect place to hide mummies in the pharaonic period. Hatshetsa was originally sought to be the thought to be the larger, unboxed mummy, but after some deliberation, it has been decided that the mummy in the box was actually Hatshetsa, as its size more appropriately is, it's, it is sized more appropriately for the taller, apparently obese woman found on the ground of that room. Still, it is not 100% sure, but at least they know that one of those two must be her. And again, I have two different articles, oh, ooh, sorry, three different articles on Hatshepsut and the discoveries around her and her reign, etc., uh, linked below. I can't help myself. I find this stuff so cool. Now, for Alexander herself, himself. Don't even get me started on that lunatic theory. We're not going to talk about it. For Alexander himself, the show mentions he was actually Macedonian, which is correct. Alexander was the first in a line of Macedonian, mostly Egyptian rulers, continuing all the way down to the Cleopatra of Lore. Priests of Egypt named Alexander Pharaoh in 332 BCE, so recent history basically compared to much of Egypt's history of pharaohs and dynastic rulers. To give some perspective, the infamous seductress Cleopatra was Cleopatra VII, with Cleopatra I being Alexander the Great's sister, Cleopatra of Macedon. Um, and when I was doing some research, I found this really funny quote that, taking out of context, well, it's just, okay, you'll see. It says, uh, in 332 BC, Alexander sent his booty home for both his mother and sister, as well as his close friends. Guess I know booty means treasure, but still, it's funny. Okay, shut up. Um... Uh, to give more context, in comparison to Alexander having been active in 332 BCE, Cleopatra VII ruled from 51 to 30 BC, and her death ended the age that began with Alexander's taking over the region 300 years earlier. As for the final resting place of Alexander himself, the tomb of Alexander the Great is considered to be one of the, quote, holy grails of archaeological discovery and has been said to have been found several times in the past, with each time failing to substantiate any results. This is why it makes it so painful to see Stephen desecrate the mummy so easily as a self-proclaimed historian, no less. They definitely undersold the significance of this entire find, and the fact that it's so historically inaccurate, but moving on. Following Cleopatra's death, remember that's Cleopatra the Seventh. 
Augustus, who was one of her lovers, visited Alexander's birthplace in Alexandria, which was where he was supposed to have been buried. He was said to have placed flowers on the tomb and a golden diadem upon the general's head. Another historian of the Roman era wrote, wrote that Cal Caligula visited the Alexander the Great tomb and took his breastplate, actually, I guess, from the tomb with him. Okay. In 199 AD, Septimus uh, Septimius Severus visited the tomb in Alexandria and ordered it to be sealed up in order to stop on the ongoing looting. And then in 215, some items from Alexander's tomb were located, were relocated by Caracalla, who removed Alexander's tunic, his ring, his belt, and some other precious items and deposited them on the coffin. In the year 356, a tsunami inundated the city after a series of earthquakes, resulting in rising sea levels. This is what we call the sinking of Alexandria. The waters of the Nile Delta caused Alexandria to sink slowly as much as 12 feet since Alexander's time. In essence, the burial ground of Alexander must have sunk quite deep into the seabed below, along with much of the ancient city, on top of which the modern city lies today. By 400 CE, the location of the site, his burial, was already in question. St. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom wrote the people of Alexandria no longer knew its exact spot when he asked in that year. There are many theories as to where Alexander's body might be. There is even a theory that places the tomb in Venice and in the city's St. Mark Cathedral specifically. The theory is dismissed by several scholars as being far-fetched, with many religious undertones. Interestingly, in my own reading up on it, that particular theory actually has some ground to it, although all through very, very conspiratorial tones. In 2014, Greece and the rest of the world were shaken by the news of the discovery of Alexander the Great's tomb in Amphipolis, northern Greece. However, this was just the physical tomb, the stone box that his sarcophagus might have meant to go in. But as research went on, it was deemed more likely that this was commissioned for Alexander, but never made it to where he was buried, and was instead owned by either his mother or wife in memorial to the great leader. Greek archaeologist Calliope and her team have dug over 10 meters, aka 35 feet, under modern-day Alexandria in their attempts to find him. It's also worth noting that Alexander is a Marvel Comics character who is tied up a bit in Kang history, so that may end up being a way to tie Kang into the series if that's what they're going to do. Again, there are three different links below talking about Alexander specifically. Back to the show, though, <laughs> there is some stuff um, while they're in the tomb area where Layla ends up talking to Harrow and realizes that Mark was probably one of the mercenaries who killed her father. So as far as I understand, after they discussed it, it seems that Mark tried to save her father from another one of the mercenaries and was taken out in the process. That's when Khonshu comes in and saves him. I guess then he felt guilty, so he met and married Layla, and then Khonshu liked her, so he abandons her. None of it really makes sense to me, realistically or logically, but okay. Um, oh, and Layla's father as Abdullah El Foulay, uh, based off of a different character in the comics. Um, but Abdul Faoul uh, is a character who uh, debuted in Marvel in 1977, known as the Scarlet Scarab, and he was a protector of Egypt who 
kept out invading forces in the 40s, is it possible that Layla might pick up that mantle in the future of the MCU or in Moon Knight? On that note, actually, Moon Knight is confirmed at this point to be a one-and-done series, with Oscar Isaac's contract stipulating further appearances will only be in movies, so keep that in mind in the future. <clears throat> Steven and the others, or I guess it's Mark and the others, end up fighting in a tomb adjacent, uh, the tomb adjacent areas all throughout the pyramid, I guess is where they are. And lo and behold, Mark is shot several times in the chest by Harrow. And without Khonshu, remember Khonshu is in his stone form forever now, he has no ability to heal himself. So he just falls back into the little ceremonial river thing. And watching this happen, I literally said out loud, so whose avatar is he going to be now? Um, supposedly, Mark dies at that moment, right? But when we see him next in the next moment, he is in a mental hospital. And everything we've seen so far is meant to have been going on just inside his head. This is, of course, 100% a callback to the 2016 Jeff Lemire Great Smallwood Moon Knight series, which takes place the first few issues in a mental hospital, and Mark Annis honestly can't know what's real and what isn't. To further make him think that he's crazy here in the show, we immediately start seeing connections to what you might call the outside, like how Harrow is Dr. Harrow at the psychiatric hospital with the canopic jars in his office. The straps that attach him to his wheelchair and whatnot are the same as the straps he put on his bed. Layla being a fellow patient who seems to be kind of using his mental state to gain wins of her own. Stephen Grant is a character from the TV show that they play in the rec room. It's uh, Dr. Stephen Grant being an Indiana Jones type character in the show Tomb Busters is what they call it. And then you get many other characters are patients in the hospital. You get the cupcakes and the goldfish in the background, the painting of the Danish village or whatever it was, etc. All those little Easter eggs trying to get it to seem that this is reality and that was all fake. Um, I do have to note um, the uh, the black woman with the shaved head is a trope that is tend to seen as pretty negative um, when people don't know what to do with black women's hair, so they just do that. Not saying that's what happened here, it's just something that I noticed. Um, so Mark, obviously refusing to believe this is real, uh, makes a break for it, running into himself, Stephen. Um, he sees Stephen crawl out of a sarcophagus and they're really excited to see each other um, and they run off together and down the hall they see that there is another sarcophagus with somebody trying to get out. More teases for Stephen Grant, more than likely. As Mark is trying to escape with Stephen, oh my gosh, I said that wrong. That was um, more, more, uh, more teases for uh, Jake Lockley. Jake Lockley. <laughs> not Stephen. He is Stephen. He is Mark. He's not Jake yet. Uh, that we've seen. But anyway, as Mark is trying to escape with Steven, um, his route takes him straight to the goddess Tawaret. She is the hippo person that we see at the end of the episode. My theory is she is the one who has saved him, just like Khonshu did in the past. I am curious if she'll have him be her avatar or what her stake in all of this really is. I'm leaning towards her being the one on the inside who knows exactly what's going on and is about to fill Steven and Mark in on this whole gods of Egypt situation. Uh, she has not appeared in Marvel Comics, actually, but she has appeared in Percy Jackson stuff, I found, which is unrelated to Marvel, obviously, but it is owned by Disney, fun 
fact, I guess. Um, and in mythology, Tauret is a goddess of fertility and motherhood, and yes, does take the form of a biped hippo. She is often seen as a protector in homes. Uh, she did also earlier appear on the show as a stuffed plush in the first episode in the gift museum where Steven works, so now we know that was actually a bit of foreshadowing. The fifth and penultimate episode will be appearing on Wednesday the 27th before the finale on the 4th of May. May the 4th, that's funny. Um, that's right, because that was the whole thing with Obi-Wan. The, yeah. And then uh, Multiverse of Madness happens right after that, so we may be into some funky stuff these last two episodes. That brings us to Young Justice Season 4, Episode 19, Encounter Upon the Razor's Edge. Uh, we have a couple of different plots that we follow on this one, so we'll split it that way. The first being the Green Lanterns are on the way to the New God Peace Conference and get a distress call and they find a dying uh, Blue Lantern. He is a Razor. He used to be a Red Lantern, uh, but he is all out of hope, which requires his Blue Lantern ring to function. Uh, the Blue Ring had found him when he was still red, so he just took it. He hasn't found what he's looking for yet, so he wants to get his rage back. He is coming to New Genesis to get it back from Metatron, who was meant to keep it safe in his, like, stash of stuff. When he asks for it back, Metatron wants to... Metatron wants... I just kept spelling Met Metatron in my notes wrong. Uh, wants, to, wants to keep his blue ring in return, so they exchange the rings, but the red ring doesn't do anything when he puts it on. Metatron reveals that he's been manipulating him this whole time. He's been studying the uh, he's been studying the red ring and giving the blue lantern false clues for his quest. So his hope would die. With his hope lost, he predicted predictably came back to exchange rings. So now Metatron gets to study the blue one while also making him angry while re while wearing the red one so he can study the red ring in action. And he finally gets it to light up for sure. Uh, meanwhile, Forager and Forager start a romance, and Rocket takes a call from her ex, who found someone to help their son in his classroom, but Rocket is worried about how that will make him look to the other kids, which seems really stupid because the kid clearly needs the help. The fight between Metatron and Red Lantern goes very public, and the Forager is crushed. When the Lantern sees what he's done, he tries to get the blue ring back, but Metatron electrocutes him. Unexpectedly, the Lantern then dons both rings, splitting between red and blue. Metatron tries to take the rings back, and he just gets blasted through his own boom tube. Razor uses the ring, the blue ring, to heal Forager. He puts the city back together, adding statues of Forager and Forager next to High Father and High Mother, which is adorable. Razor then goes on to continue his quest. On the other side of the plot, the Legion members tell Kid Flash what hap what's happening with Connor and their own Legion member, the Phantom Zone. When Krypton was destroyed, well, actually, I don't think they know that it's the Phantom Zone yet. They, th they think that they're dead, but... What they're talking about has to do with the Phantom Zone. When Krypton was destroyed, no one released the prisoners of the Phantom Zone, so they were stuck there for thousands of years. When the Legion found it, they paroled the prisoners who had all been trapped there for ages. That's where Zod and his second-in-command had had their son, Lore, who now leads Ma'alafalak and whoever the other dude is, to some mystery mission for Darkseid. He says when the Legion, quote, rescued them, they put them on a planet with a red sun, and Laura's father got them to a yellow sun planet. They intended to lead a rebellion against the United Planets. 
The difference between the Legion and Lore's version of events seems to be clear. It literally is a matter of perspective, everyone assuming the other is fighting against them, and then just a little bit of the Zods being super power hungry. In any case, Legion put Zod and his followers back in the Phantom Zone, and Lore was let go for being a teenager. He had been raised to hate the Elves, and he hates the Legion just as much. Hating them, who are inspired by Connor Kent, he decided to take his revenge out on Connor. He stole the Kryptonite and the Time Sphere, escaped into the past, and made his changes to the Time Stream. For the Legion members still in the past, which is the present on the show, they couldn't contact their HQ anymore because history had changed and Legion had never been formed. Instead, Zod is the ruler in their own timeline. Lore was the one to do what happened to the Connor to, to the Connor. Lore was the one to do what happened to Connor on Mars. He destroyed the Zeta tube, cut off the Legion from being able to get too close, and then sets off the bomb. Ma'ala Fa'ak thanks Lore for killing his his sister's fiance, which is like a super yikes moment. This leads all to his deal with Darkseid. It is apparently similar to the deal he had with Vandal Savage. Darkseid provides resource and power. And they find the Vault of Metatron, steal the projector from the Phantom Zone, and release his parents. So that is where we're headed for the remaining bit of the season of Young Justice Season 4. Getting into the Marvel Comics July solicitations, I am going to be starting with things that I am most excited for. And then there'll be a big chunk of X-Men stuff, uh, some Avengers stuff, let's see, Avengers, 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 some Thor stuff... And then just uh, some some briefer notes. So, starting off with the Strange number 5 issue, which I'm not sure if it'll be the last issue of the series or not, uh, does not indicate that here, so hopefully not. It's still going to be by Jed McKay with art by Marcelo Ferreira, uh, cover by Lee Garbett. The solicit says, Back from the dead, dead heroes and villains alike have been reanimated as ghoulish versions of their past selves. Now it's up to Strange and the Harvestmen to make sure... Strange? Are they talking about Clea? It must be Clea. And the Harvestmen to make sure these dead supers stay dead. But what happens when the next reanimated hero is Clea's, Clea's dead husband, Stephen Strange? New Mutants number 28 by Vita Ayala and Rod Reese with Jan Durisman, Dursima. Covered by Lionel Francis Yu, it says the end of an era in more ways than one. The time has come for magic to conquer her demons. Will Ileana be able to contend with manifestations of her trauma and save her friends in the process? And if Madeline does gain the throne, can the Goblin Queen contain the fiery madness of Limbo? Or will her old inclinations towards chaos resurface, bring Kokoa and the rest of the world to their knees? Captain Marvel number 40 will be Kelly Thompson with Juan Frigeri and Alvaro Lopez on art. Covered by R.B. Silva with a Predator variant cover by Carrie Nord. It says the hammer or the nail. Captain Marvel's magical tribunal goes doubles down as Carol struggles to break free of her prison using only what she came with, namely herself. But if Earth's mightiest hero can't solve this puzzle, she'll be Captain Marvel no more. Which was maybe the master plan all along? Question mark. Demon Wars, the Iron Samurai. This is Peach Promoko's Demon Days continuing into Demon Wars, the retelling of Civil War. This will be by Peach Promoko and Peach Promoko, with covers by Peach Promoko, Peach Promoko, Peach Promoko, Matias Bergara, Matteo Scalera, 
uh, Guri Hero, Audrey Mark, Terry Dodson, Ricky Yagawa, Alex Maliv, and Humberto's, Humberto Ramos. It says, Journey into the imagination of Stormbreaker Peach Momoko with Demon Wars. Peach takes her version of the Marvel Universe to the next level by transporting readers into another dimension, one filled with wondrous creatures, sentient samurai armor, a winged individual in a falcon mask, a mysterious panther person, and a red snake-like monster with a deadly appetite. When Mariko Yoshida finds herself in the middle of a war between these creatures, will she be forced to choose a side? Don't miss the next evolution of the Peach Romokos Marvel Universe. Exterminators number one of five will be written by Leah Williams, art by Carlos Gomez, covered by Federico Vincenti, Vincentini. Variants by Arthur Adams, Tom Muller, Scotty Young, Inyuk Lee, and Terry Dodson. It says, A, four of the fiercest X-Men are about to have... Oh, actually, sorry, no. That's right, I have two solicitations for this because I found two for some reason. Not sure what the difference is. Here's solicitation A. <laughs> four of the fiercest X-Men are about to have a night they'll never forget. In typical X-Men fashion, what starts as a wild night out gets even crazier when Jubilee, Boom Boom, and Dazzler are kidnapped and put into elaborate death traps by a mysterious new army of enemies. What are these fierce mutants with the power to blow things up to do? Expect a hardcore, neon-fueled, down-and-dirty type adventure unlike any seen before in X-Men history with all the light blasts, fireworks, time bombs, and brawling you can possibly hope for. The second solicitation says, When Jubilee and Boom Boom agree to take Dazzler out for a night in the town to console her after her nasty breakup, they have no idea they're about to be kidnapped and put into elaborate death traps for their efforts. What are three girls with the powers to blow things up to do? That's pretty much it. I will be checking that out, even though I do not like Boom Boom in the slightest. Okay, Axe, being A-X-E, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, Judgment Day, it's their new team event thing that they're doing it's gonna be six issues issues one and two of six come out in july i'm only going to read you the solicitation for one this will be by karen gillen and valerio shitty <laughs> cover by mark brooks the x-men claim they're the planet's new gods the eternals know that position is already filled the avengers are about to realize exactly how many secrets their so-called friends have kept from them years of tension lead to a volcanic eruption as two worlds burn who has leaked the X-Men's secrets to their latest foes? Why is Tony Stark abducting an old friend? And who stands in judgment over the whole world? As the world shakes, an unlikely group of heroes and less-than-heroes gather to find a peaceful solution. Sadly, the best-laid plans of man, mutant, and eternal oft go awry. And then they have a mini spin-off of that called Death of the to the Mutants. It'll be three issues, the first of which... Uh, it's coming out in July by Kieran Gillen with art by Guiu. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that. Via Nova. Covered by Asad Rubik. It says, The mutants are deviants. Oh, that's interesting. Eternals are COVID coded to excess to correct excess deviation. The mutants are eternal. Mars colonizers ever spreading. Eternals know what they should do. Our heroes don't want to, but can they resist the murderous designs coded into their body as surely as any sentinel? And if they can't, can anyone survive the coming judgment? This sounds more interesting than the main series, I guess. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, not the movie, the series. Not sure how many issues it's going to be, but this is number one. Written by Jean Luen Yang. Yay! 
he's fantastic. And art by Marcus Toe, cover by Lionel Francis Yu, who is also awesome. Variants by Jim Chung, Art Germ, Art Germ, and Chris Bacello, and also Lionel Francis Yu. It says, a bold new era starts here. Shang-Chi has gained possession of the powerful Ten Rings, but so much concentrated energy has not gone unnoticed. Now every bounty hunter, assassin, and evil syndicate in the Marvel Universe is coming to take the rings from him. But will the responsibility and the truth of the rings be too much to bear for the master of Kung Fu? Find out as the true origin of the Ten Rings starts here from Jin Wen Yang and Marcus To. Avengers 1 million BC number one by Jason Aaron, Kev Walker, covered by Ed McGinnis, and variant by Alex Horley. Arriving in July, the giant-sized issue will take readers to the earliest days of Marvel Universe and back to the start of Jason Aaron's Avengers, when he first introduced Avengers 1 million BC, which was really lame. Aaron will team up with the artist Kev Walker and unearth long-awaited answers behind this original incarnation of Earth's mightiest heroes, including Thor's mysterious connection to the Phoenix Force. The story also promises to reveal how this fascinating addition to the Avengers mythos will play into a major upcoming Avengers saga later this year. Ms. Marvel and Wolverine number ones by Jody Hauser, with art by Zay Carlos, covers by Sarah Pacelli, Mahmoud Asrar, and Peach Momoko. That was my chair creaking, I swear. When a mysterious threat lands in New York City, Ms. Marvel takes matters into her own embiggened hands. But with Krakoan security and tech compromise, you can bet Wolverine on the X-Men won't be far behind. The best there is at what he does teams up with one of the Marvel Universe's most lauded heroes in an action-packed adventure for the ages. Avengers and Moon Girl number one, written by Mahale Mashigo, with art by Diogenes Diogenes Neves, I'm sorry, I said that wrong for sure, with cover by Aletha Martinez and a variant by Janoy Lindsay. Even after a team-up with Miles Morales to scout Brooklyn for her missing T-Rex, Moon Girl is still missing Devil Dinosaur, and now she has a wonky devil clone to try and save lives for fear of explosive repercussions. But the Avengers have found some rogue dinosaur activity and need her to come with them right away to fix it from Wakanda to the moon. Iron Cat number two of five by Jed McKay with art by Perry Perez is his continuation of the Black Cat saga, which he has done fantastically with, if I do say so. Uh, art, or sorry, cover by Keizama and Mike Mayhew. It says the cat's out of the bag. Iron Cat has it out for Felicia Hardy, the Black Cat, and will stop at nothing to tear Felicia down. Did I say Iron Cat? It's Iron... Iron, it's Iron Cat, not Iron Heart. I don't know what I said. Meanwhile, all hell has broken loose at the Stark Unlimited after Iron Cat broke in to steal the armor. Iron Man and Black Cat join forces to stop their mutual enemy. This is one team up you don't want to miss. Jane Foster and then Mighty Four number two, Mighty Thor number two of five by Torun Grombeck and Michael Dowling with covers by Ryan Stegman, Peach Momoko, Alex Horley, and Jung Young Yoon. When Jane and Odin find a clue steeped- wait, Odin's dead. Whatever. Find a clue steeped in unknown magic, they turn to Dr. Voodoo for help finding Thor, and learn of an interdimensional threat that will require more than Thor's strength to combat. Meanwhile, Runa cuts a Midgardian vacation short Midgardian, to help the warriors of Asgard hold off their enemies' assault on the Golden Realm. But why do their enemies seem to know something Sif doesn't? The Variants 2 of 5 by Gail Simone with Phil Noto, cover by 
Filnoto and Ivan Chavrin. Jessica Jones is experiencing terrifying blackouts and leaving chaos and pain in her wake. But will the latest effects of her missing time leave her on the wrong side of the law and her own family? Meanwhile, the mysterious variants arrive and Jessica fears for her own sanity. Daredevil number two by Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto with apparently other artists involved as well. Cover is by Sinkevich, Frank, Woods. This is Daredevil number 650, apparently. After Devil's Reign, everything it has ever meant to be Daredevil has changed. Thanks to Elektra and her newfound role as the woman without fear, Daredevil is more ambitious than ever, with a who's who of creators would cross the fabled character's history and some can't-miss surprises along the way. This oversized epic kicks the next year of Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto's Landmark run on Daredevil off in explosive style. Immortal X-Men number 5 will be written by Kieran Gillen with art by Michelle Bandini, cover by Giuseppe Camoncoli. It says, Bennett du Paris was born in the 12th century. Exodus marched forth with a sword in his hand and a shield in his heart to protect what he believes. It's now the 21st century. Oh cool, we're getting stuff on Exodus. I'm excited. What's changed? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the Eternals who dared attack Krakoa are going to discover what that means. We also have, these aren't going to be without the solicitations, AXE Judgment Day 2 of 6 by Kieran Gillen and Valerio Shitty, X-Men Red number 5 by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli, X-Force 30 by Benjamin Percy and Robert Gill, X-Men 13 by Jerry Duggan and C.F. Villa, I guess it's Gary, isn't it? Uh, Marauders number five by Steve Orlando and Andrea Brocardo. Knights of X number four by Teeny Howard and Bob Quinn. Legion of X number four by C. Spurrier and Jan Basulda, Basildua. Thor number 27 by Donny Case and Salvador Laorca. Ant-Man number two of four by Al Ewing and Tom Riley. ASM number seven by Zeb Wells and J.R.J.R. John Romita Jr. I don't know if I'm foreshortening things too much for y'all. Genus Bell, Captain Marvel, number two of five by Peter David and Juanan Ramirez. Spider-Punk, four of five by Cody Ziglar and Justin Mason. Spider-Gwen, Gwenverse, five of five by Tim Seeley and Jody Nishijima. Thunderbolts, three of five by Jim Zub and Sean Izaki. Izaxi? Captain Carter, 5 of 5 by Jamie McKelvey and Marika Cresta. Iron Man 22 by Christopher Cantwell and Angela, oh sorry, Angel Unzueta, which has no sign of Patsy, so I will be skipping that. And Black Panther number 8 by John Ridley and Stefano Landini. And all that leaves us with is the DC Comics July solicitations, which will handle pretty much a, a more or less similar way as we did the Marvel, and I promise it will not be as long, because <laughs> um, I'm not as big into a lot of the DC stuff that's going on, which I actually am planning on writing a thing to explain on on my blog. So, like I said, the site is getting updates continually, so keep checking that one. Uh, but anyway, starting off with the DC July solicits, beginning with Poison Ivy number two by G. Willow Wilson, with art by Marcio Takara, cover by Jessica Fong, with variants by the illustrious Jenny Frizen and Claire Rowe and Alvaro Martinez Bueno. It says, destroying humanity is a lot of work and a girl's gotta eat. On her journey to doom mankind, Ivy makes a pit stop at a roadside restaurant where she meets a hungry poet who makes her question her motives, at least until the cops show up. Ivy has left Gotham, but she can't seem to escape the law. 
It sounds like it's going to be a fun issue, I'm not going to lie. Batman 125 kicks off Chip Zartsky's run on the series with art by Jorge Jimenez. Backup art apparently by Belen Ortega. We've got a lot of covers for this one, including Jim Lee, Scott Williams, Gabriel Delato, Inyuk Lee, Francesco Matina, Simone DeMeo, Jorge Jimenez, Jock, Alex Garner, Chip Zartsky, and then another one by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Says superstar writer Chip Zarsky joins legendary artist Jorge Jimenez to define a new era in Batman. Bruce Wayne is at a turning point, haunted by dreams of a dark future, while Gotham City billionaires are being gruesomely murdered. <laughs> R.I.P. I guess. With the discovery of an arch enemy's involvement and a tragedy unfolding, the Dark Knight's nightmares are just beginning. Failsafe starts here. And in the backup, there's chaos in Gotham as the underworld fights over one of its crown jewels, and Selina Kyle is caught in the middle. Can she stop the bloodshed and maybe even make a little money in the process? Dark Crisis, World Without a Justice League, Superman, number one. That's like a full-on mouthful. Um, this is by Tom King with art by Chris Burnham. We also have a backup story written by Brandon Thomas and Chuck Brown with art by Fisco, oh sorry, Fico Osio. Covers by Steve Beach and Chris Burnham. It says when Pariah and his forces of the Great Darkness laid to waste power one of the laid to waste the most powerful superheroes of all time, all hope was lost. With a man of steel suffering the same fate as his, as that of his comrades, come join us for a look at the world at a world of dreams he would never have thought possible while alive where there's where there's life left oh my god where there's life there's hope oh my gosh and with that hope comes deeper unraveling of the tapestry of dcu's biggest event of 2022 artemis wanted number one is going to be a one shot by vita ayala with art by skylar patridge covers by mateo scalera becky clunan and Kamom shurahama after the events of Trial of the Amazons, Artemis is on the run from her sisters for her sins. She may say it was all in the name of peace, but not even Wonder Woman believes a word she says. Now the former member of Bonner McDowell is wanted not only by her people, but all Amazon tribes. Is there a future warrior who has destroyed her past? Future four warrior who has destroyed her past. Find out as Artemis travels the world searching for answers and a new path forward. She'll need all the help she can get, and it may come from the unlikeliest of sources, the gods. Young Justice Targets 1 of 6 is by Greg Weissman, cover and art by Christopher Jones, variants by Megan Hedrick and Travis Mercer. It says, Queen Perdita has been kidnapped. Mysterious armored assailants have snatched the, the Vlat... The Vladivan, Vladivan royal out from beneath bow hunter security, leaving Green Arrow and Black Canary poisoned as and comatose in the process. Now a rallying cry echoes around the globe and across super teams to band together and rescue Perdita. Young Justice co-creator Greg Weissman and Christopher Jones bring you an action-packed follow-up to Young Justice Phantoms that will rock the team to its core. Plus, each issue includes a bonus story detailing previously unseen adventures from past seasons of Young Justice. This is really for the Young Justice crew. Batman White Knight Presents Red Hood 1 of 2. We actually talked about this um, on the last episode, so I'll kind of skip over the solicit but it is part of the murphy verse and it is a uh, a twofer um sp doing his basically portrayal of under the red hood 
DC vs. Vampires All Out War 1 of 6 is written by Matthew Rosenberg and Alex Pecknadel? Pecknadel? I'm sorry. It has art by Pascal Qualano. The backup story is written and drawn by Guillaume Singelin. Oh my god, I definitely butchered that. And it is a follow-up to the current series. Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 13. We already talked about how it's going to be introducing DC um, Dreamer to the DCU, the main DCU. Uh, this is by Tom Taylor and Nicole Maines, with art by Clayton Henry. Other things coming from DC. I've got Dark Crisis, number 2. Multiversity Teen Justice, number 2, by Evan Cohen. Ivan, <laughs> even. Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore with art by Marco Faia. Faia? I'm so sorry. Batman Killing Time number five by Tom King and David Marquez. DC Mech number one by Kenny Porter and Baldemar Rivas. Batman The Night number seven by Chip Zardsky and Carmine Di Gian Domenico. Black Adam number two by Christopher Priest and Rafa Sandoval. Catwoman number 45 by Teeny Howard with art by Nico Leon, with covers by Jeff Decal, Jenny Frizen, and Sozo Mica. All fantastic, honestly. Uh, DC vs. Vampires 7 of 12 by Matthew Rosenberg and Tinian IV, with art by Otto Schmidt. Harley Quinn 17 by Stephanie Phillips and Riley Rosmo. I Am Batman number 11 by John Ridley and Christian Duche. Monkey Prince number 6 by Jean Luen Yang and Bernard Chang. Nubia, Queen of the Amazons, number two by Stephanie Williams, with art by Aletha Martinez and Mark Morales. We also have Ram V taking over Detective Comics. A bunch of crisis crossovers. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is a graphic novel. I believe it is a YA graphic novel, uh, but it is called Constantine Distorted Illusions. It's written by Cami Garcia, who I have actually been reading since I was a teenager, um, and has art uh, by Isaac Goodhart. It says John Constantine is, and has always been, a magician of the highest caliber who doesn't need additional training from any highbrow magician, thank you very much. But a magical apprenticeship in the United States is a good excuse to get out of London, and in Washington, D.C., he can join his best friend's punk band, Mucus Membrane. And when, when the band begins to dabble in magic, a complicated spell gets out of hand, and the disastrous consequences might be more than Constantine can handle. Join number one New York Times bestselling author Kenny Garcia and Isaac, and artist Isaac Goodhart in the most thrilling magical team-up of the year. Woo-wee! That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Look at us wrapping it up around two hours long again this week. Uh, don't forget, this Wednesday, the 27th, is the penultimate episode of Moon Knight on Disney+. Thursday, we have new Young Justice Phantoms episodes, and I will discuss all of that media next Monday on the 2nd of May. I will refrain from trying to imitate um, any sync members. Or was it Backstreet Boys? I'm pretty sure it's was sync. I was, I was a child at the time. I should know this. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening for today's episode. Notably, also, um, on the next episode coming May the 2nd, we are also going to be discussing, uh, what, we, what, what should we call it? Multiverse of Madness Precast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because Multiverse of Madness does come out next Friday, the 6th. 
Um, so hopefully I will be able to see that before I get it spoiled and you all as well. Um, but I will be discussing what we kind of know expectations wise will be coming in the movie on the next episode, episode 61, along with the, uh, the new Moon Knight and Young Justice episodes, um, whatever else, you know, news and stuff has pops up between now and then, you know, we always, always have it ready to go. Um, also don't forget to check out the magic podcast special. If you have not seen that, go and check that one out all about Ileana Rasputin. And again, the May Yancey Street special is going to be about Patsy Walker and her really intense Marvel history as it goes back all the way to the 1940s. So uh, be ready for that coming in this month. No, it's coming in May, but later this week in prelude slash uh, follow-up to New Mutants number 25, I'm going to be putting out a surprise Madeline Pryor special as well uh, because I love her and she deserves justice and there's some news and things about her that we've been hearing that I will be adding to that um, and really just ranting about how much she deserves justice for whatever length of time that one ends up being. But in all reality, I do actually have a ton of really great information on her. Um, I consider myself the Madeline Pryor pro. I really do because I have uh, so much familiarity with her appearances. But anyway, um, you can look for that by Friday. I will have that up. And in the meantime, have a great week. It's kind of warm, so stay hydrated, get sweaty about your hobbies, and we'll see you next week.